So now we turn to our third session, which is entitled Words Apart, Being on the Other Side of the Table. And this is necessary and extremely important for us as many of the sons who are self-focused or self-centered, or we see the worldview from our own perspective, the way that we grew up, the culture we live in, the families we brought up in, our friends, our education, our own worldviews determine who we are today, and this is amazing. But once we start to think about being in a relationship, we have to understand where the other person is coming from, how they see us, not to put us down, but just to try to turn the tables around and uh, walk in their shoes, or see from their own perspective, because again, regardless of how we were brought up, we're all different. And uh, there's so many differences that we're gonna discuss some of them today. I'm sure there are many other ways that we can think, but between males and females, it could be gender differences. It could be um, socioeconomic statuses, the way that we're brought up. Some people are brought up with a lot of financial abundance and other people were just kind of barely making it. Uh, how affluent we are, the, the, the neighborhoods which we grew up in, the school that we went to, uh, the friends that we had, uh, so many differences that could make or break a relationship. And it's really important for the other person to appreciate us for who we are, but at some point there has to be a compromise or walking across the room or uh, crossing that bridge to reach to that person in order to make sure that he gets you or she gets you. They understand where you're coming from and also you have to understand where they are coming from. So the biblical model we're gonna use for this session is David, Nabal, and Abigail. And uh, we're gonna go through some personality assessments and we've done already uh, last night, if you were here, the um, uh, love languages assessment and we discussed that. So we're gonna go through a couple more of them to kind of understand not only ourselves, but to understand where the other person is coming from. We're gonna speak about a different approach and uh, we're gonna focus about men are from Mars and women are from Venus, which is a famous book that will explore some aspects of this book. Uh, Gird on your sword, victims of abuse and, and aggression. The way to a man's heart is of course through what? <laughs> stomach, of course, we know that already, but this is a biblical fact, it's not the... Uh, <laughs> Abigail was so smart. Uh, the concept of falling on her face, and we're going to speak a bit about feminism. And finally, blessed is your advice, gender roles and responsibilities. Let's give a general introduction about that chapter in 1 Samuel 24 and 25. The idea here is that um, David, King David was on the run. And in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, he came across Saul. Saul was his arch nemesis, even though uh, they were supposed to be friends and they had lots of appreciation, except the Spirit of God had departed from Saul and he wasn't guided by the Holy Spirit anymore. And uh, Samuel came and anointed David as king and David was supposed to be the rightful king at that time. Nevertheless, Samuel, uh, sorry, um, Saul was chasing him throughout the wilderness, and David had the chance or the opportunity to kill Saul. But out of respect and reverence for the former king, he spared his life. He just cut a little piece from the wing or corner of his hem, 
uh, as a proof that he had that chance to kill him, but actually he did not. So coming out of this chapter, 1 Samuel 24, we enter into chapter 25 and we're introduced to two people. And um, of course, David had uh, all his, uh, his, his warriors uh, and his army who were protecting a very rich man whose name is Nabal. And Nabal was extremely rich, but he was a foolish man. And uh, even though he possessed a lot of sheep and a lot of uh, money, except he wasn't wise enough. But we come face to face with another, uh, you know, extremely opposite of uh, personality, was extremely opposite of Nabal, his wife, Abigail. Father Tadros Malachi says in the last chapter, the violent Saul fell into the hand of the meek and humble David who refrained from doing him any harm. And now, as the harsh and evil Nabal refused to offer a gift to David's servants, who guarded his sheep and reviled them, David intended to avenge himself against him, uh, which shows his human weakness. So you see this contrast uh, between David, who was very patient with Saul, but now he's becoming extremely violent with Nabal. And this shows his human weakness. But the Lord sent him a wise woman to keep him from doing that. And the prophet listened to her advice, which was a sign of meekness. Let's take the story from the beginning. And uh, we come face to face with uh, Nabal and Abigail and how the scripture explains and tells us a bit about their personalities. Now there was a man in Mount whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and a thousand goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doing. Just to continue our conversation from last night about the uh, love languages, we come face to face here at the beginning of this story with two personalities who were married, two individuals who were very different. Nabal was very aggressive. He was uh, a businessman. David came up to him and he says, offer us some food as a courtesy for the people who have been protecting you. And he lashed out at him, and as we will see in a minute. But we come face to face with these two very different personalities. One is aggressive and um, just uh, vulgar and disrespectful. But we see also a beautiful woman whose name is Abigail. And the scripture introduces her as someone who's understanding. And this virtuous understanding means wisdom and discernment. These three words, especially in the Old Testament, are used interchangeably. Wise, discern, and understanding. It refers to uh, a quality of the mind and the ability to make decisions uh, with patience and with a lot of logic and thinking rather than being very uh, hot-tempered and making irrational decisions. So here we continue our discussion on uh, different personalities or uh, personality types. And uh, since the beginning of the 20th century, we have seen a lot of psycholo psychologists who do uh, quite a bit of research on different personality types. Uh, Carl Jung, uh, of course, uh, theory of psychological types, uh, put the basis for um, three different types of, of personalities. And then 
Uh, after that, Isabel Briggs Myers, and she was a researcher and practitioner of Young's theory. She proposed to see that, uh, you know, extended that theory and put like a fourth uh, dimension to it, which is the judging and perceiving relationship as a fourth dichotomy influencing personality types. So what is a personality type anyways? And we mentioned this yesterday, but since not all of us were there, I'm just gonna say it again that these are all researchers who put under <coughs> perceptions on different kinds of personalities, how we think, how we analyze information that comes to us, are we motivated, not motivated. But what we need to keep in mind that we cannot contain all of God's creation in just a few simple uh, researchers or uh, uh, theories, because God's creation is so vast. And it also doesn't mean that one personality is different or is better than other personalities, just the way that God created us. And the more we invest into this knowledge, the more that we can see uh, how amazing is God's creation, and we can celebrate that in ourselves. We have to maintain at the end of the day that we are one body but many members as we seek to grow and to learn, as uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, Romans chapter 4, uh, chapter 12, and Ephesians chapter 4, all speak to us about the diversity that is present within the body of God. So personality assessment, let's uh, speak a bit about Myers-Briggs personality types. So uh, the first criteria is the E and the I, and it's the extraversion and the introversion, or extrovert and introvert. What does it mean? It signifies the source and direction of the person's energy expression. An extrovert source and direction of energy expression is mainly in the external world, while an introvert has a source of energy mainly in their own internal world. Where do we draw our energy? The extroverts love to hang out with people all the time. They are social butterflies. They can go from table to table, from one group to the other group, and they don't get exhausted because they find joy in connecting with, with other people to a certain extent. Again, think about uh, these as extremes. Most probably not all of us are not like at one extreme or the other. Sometimes we're 40, 60, or 70, 30, so you can have a combination of many of these traits. Well, the introvert is someone who has just a few friends that they're comfortable with, uh, they get their energy from being by themselves, they read a, read a book or hang out with uh, you know, a spouse at home. Like This is quite often, uh, if you have like an extrovert and introvert uh, getting married, some of the challenges would be, you know, we go out way too much, let's just stay home and watch a movie. And the other person is like, we stay home too much, let's go out and meet with friends. Um, for my wife and I, we're uh, different. She's an introvert, I'm an extrovert. So, uh, you know, again, this needed some, some adjustment and some balance because I have to understand that, you know, I can't put her always amongst a thousand people and expect her to enjoy her time. And at the same time, she understands that, you know, I'm a people's person and I, I love to hang out with people and get to know new people. Like, it's very difficult for her to go up to someone and introduce herself and get to know her because she already knows like a few people that she's very comfortable with. But the introvert may develop quality friendships and relationships because they invest a lot of time. The extrovert, very difficult to like 
to stick to one group, so most of these relationships are very shallow. And that's the way it is for me. I know a lot of people, but I don't know too many people like at a deep, deep level. Because I don't have the time to do this or the mindset, but I can be a social butterfly, but I won't be a quality <coughs> friend for, for anyone. Sorry. <laughs> the second uh, type would be sensing, or the S versus intuition. Represents the method by which someone perceives information. Sensing means that a person mainly believes information he or she receives directly from the external world. And intuition means that the person believes mainly information he or she perceives from an internal or an imaginative world. So is it believe in facts or or like how, how, how do we act to, you know, intuition, I have a feeling, versus I know facts. So these, are, again, are two extremes. Thirdly, I think in versus a, a feeler, again, very close to, to, to the second one, represents how a person processes information. So the first one is how we receive the information um, from the sources, and then the, this one, thinking versus feeling, means how we process it, so receiving and processing. Thinking means that the person makes a decision mainly through logic. Feeling means that a rule, he or she, makes a decision based on emotion. And again, when me and my wife are very, my wife and I are very different because I base my decisions on emotions, she's very logical, is a thinker. Based on what they feel they should do. Finally, judging and perceiving uh, reflects how a person implements the information he or she processed. Judging means that a person organizes all of their life events and a rule sticks to this plan. Perceiving means that he or she is inclined to improvise and explore alternative options. Uh, there's some people who are risk takers. And they say, yeah, we're going on a road trip, let's go. Can be ready in five minutes. Other people panic, no, I need to plan. I need a week or two or a month ahead of time in order to make all of these arrangements. I, again, my wife and I are polar opposites because I'm very impulsive and I'm ready to go at any time to an adventure and she needs her time to to plan things out. So there are other ways of thinking also about personalities. You have the whole idea of type A personality, the people who are very motivated and uh, uh, people are uh, organized and uh, they're competitive and ambitious and impatient. Sometimes they're the ones who get the most heart attacks are probably with their heart. Um, and you have the type B personalities who are more relaxed and uh, less neurotic, I guess, or frantic, and these are laid-back people. So we see more and more women in our generation now who are type A personalities, and uh, some of the men who are not used to type A personalities with women um, get really frustrated with that, but at the same time, we have to be who we are, right? Like if, you know, we've been competitive all of our life to achieve our highest academic standings, we're not gonna change who we are when it comes to our personal relationships. So how that plays together and, and, and the approach needs a lot of work because you are who you are. God created you in, in this format. But at the same time, there's a need also to understand the other perspective, where they're coming from. Um, for a lot of Middle Eastern men, they're thinking, you know, I should be you know, very relaxed and submissive and 
very gentle in her ways and uh, more or less like a follower, as we will see in Abigail, but the reality of our generation is that things are changing. How are we going to adapt to that? Very important to think about it and we can speak about it later on. A different approach. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing the sheep, David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. For we come on a feast day. Please give, give whatever comes to your hand, to your servant, and to your son, David. David is speaking as the king. He's the anointed king. And he's going to this businessman and he's speaking with him with a lot of humility. And he called himself your son to Nabal. And he didn't have to do this. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away, each one from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to them when I do not know where they are from? Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife. And here we can see very different approaches, like personalities now in action. You see, Nabal is the man, very violent in the way that he spoke. And then we come across the beautiful Abigail who has just heard about the situation. How are they both going to react? And here I want to speak a little bit about the whole concept of how God created us, different men and women. I know now we're approaching a culture where it doesn't want to make any distinction between males and females. We'll speak about that a little bit later with the feminist movement. But the truth is God created us very different, very different. In this uh, book by John Gray, I'm sure many of you are familiar with it, it speaks about men in the following way. They are naturally our problem solvers, always offering solutions. And uh, when a woman comes and speaks with a man, he's not listening to what he's saying. <laughs> All he's thinking, how am I going to respond? What am I going to say? And offers unsolicited advice. Like she comes back and says, I'm having trouble at work, and I'm having all these problems. And he's, in his mind, why don't you quit? I don't want to quit. I'm not telling you all of these things that tell me. Like, I knew already that if I want to quit, I'll quit. But it's a way to, to release that this emotion and to feel hurt. But the problem with some men is that they're, by nature, they're problem solvers and offering solutions. They feel judged by their competence, achieving goals and success. Remember um, the PowerPoint yesterday of the matrimonial ads? One of them said, like, I'm a warrior and I'm even going to help you in the house chores. I can carry heavy stuff, right? <laughs> so that idea of, of always achieving goals and when you ask a man, you know, to do something that he feels important and he feels validated and he feels that he's successful. There's a lot of focus on, on work and, and technology and I know that's changing now. You know, this book is not that old. I think it's like 12 or 13 years old, but uh, I can already see how some of these things are changing very quickly in our culture. But men are very much focused on their careers and, and also on technology. That's becoming also a fact for women now. Men may handle stress by retreating to their man cave or being alone and not speaking. That's something that 
attacks creates tensions in, in relationships because women want to talk things out immediately and the man is like, just please give me a chance. I want to be by myself. I want to go for a drive. I want to, you know, even go out with the guys. I, I'm not ready to speak right now and, and immediately, uh, but I will be later. Like, don't worry, I'm going to come back and I'm, I'm going to be okay. Because they want to formulate how they're feeling, what they're thinking at, at that time. They want to speak something that may hurt the person in front of them, so they need that alone time and, and man cave. They view feelings as, as weakness and being incompetent. And again, that's changing in our world, but again, according to this book, you know, but I think some of it is still true, like uh, not so many men are feelers or they can express their emotions. And uh, they might have a different thought language, different personality, but uh, it's very difficult to get a group of guys to sit there and just talk about their feelings and their emotions. Like, you feel it's not, it's not right. Um, in order to win them over, they must feel needed and then they feel competent in our view. As for women, um, not always looking for solutions, and uh, the complaint against men is that you're not listening. It's like I'm speaking, but you're not listening. But they just need an ear that hears me out and is um, empathetic and is, uh, acknowledges what I'm saying. They perceived as offering unsolicited advice. At least this is from the perspective of the men, right? Like, like sometimes I hear from the men like, She's my mother, she's not my fiance, she's not my wife. Like she's mothering me. She's telling me what to do, how to dress, when to wake up, when to sleep. Like she's trying to organize and arrange my life in a way that, you know, I already have a mother at home. Like I'm not getting married to another mother. I want her to be my spouse, my wife, uh, to develop that kind of, of connection. Sense of self uh, is defined by feelings and quality of the relationships. Um, Again, it's a statement you may argue back and forth, but uh, very important for, for ladies and of course for men, uh, you know, to, to have their feelings validated and to be in a relationship because it's very important to feel secure in that sense. Women handle stress by talking um, and talking. talking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a good program actually, someone said, that uh, this is actually how, how children sometimes learn to, to speak because mothers speak to them all the time and, and things like that. But I'm not sure of the statistic, I didn't look it up actually. But, uh, it's possible that uh, I, I read somewhere that women do speak at least four times as much as men in, in a day. Like, like the amount, if you count all the words that each gender kind of speaks, uh, you find women are more expressive towards their, their emotions, whether guys you know, are more about like sports and hanging out and chilling and not not as much uh, speaking or, or talking. Needs to feel cherished and loved and uh, cherishes trust and loyalty from the other gender. The third lesson we learned from the story here in uh, verse 13 that says, Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword. And David also girded on his sword, and about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. Um, and um, just remember the truth, but I don't know what I'm going to say. <laughs> you know the 
supplies joke? What did the janitor say when he went home to his family? Supplies! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just I don't know. <laughs> when I read that word with the supplies, I. <laughs> and you know, let's move on. So, David. <laughs> David was ready to start a war with Abigail. He said, by the morning, this man will be abolished. He will be deleted along with all of his people, his servants, his sheep, his animals. No one would ever hear again of Nabal and his family. So got very rough and tough, and he was about to start a war. And he got all his weapons out. And here I want to comment on the hope. You know, when we are in a relationship, and again, this is something that people suffer from all over the world, especially in the Middle Eastern culture, uh, where people are very hot-tempered, they make fast decisions, irrational decisions, um, which may cause hurt to other people. And in my journey of, of ministry and wherever I travel, I always meet people who have been victims of, of abuse and aggression. And uh, this type of abuse could come uh, from verbal uh, uh, abuse to, to emotional, to physical, or sexual abuse amongst other means. And people are really hurt. And uh, I have no doubt in my mind that many of the parents mean no harm, or at least this is the perception that they love their children. But maybe the way that they were brought up, or the culture, that they were brought up, you know, bring up your children with uh, an iron fist and uh, with a lot of discipline, even if it has to go all the way uh, to any type of abuse. We've seen uh, women who had domestic abuse issues and children who were being traumatized uh, in their upbringing. And of course, you know, it could happen from both men and women, but it is predominantly uh, men towards women or, or children and uh, many people have been scarred and have not received proper healing or, or counseling a lot of people uh, have kept it in for a long time and especially those who were abused as, as children um, in the past and i'm telling you like a, you know i'm just going to be very vulnerable with you and very honest with you and it's not something easy it's something that doesn't come naturally to me, but now I'm just trying to practice it more and more. Like as a child in Egypt, before my family moved to, to, to North America, to Canada, uh, this was the way to bring up children, basically to beat them. Like, like I was beat uh, with, you know, of course shipship is like the common, <laughs> is the common with, most, with most parents, but uh, like slippers, you know, your mom takes off the slipper and just, it's called the ship ship uh, weapon, but it's, uh, I think it's universal. But beyond that, uh, you know, a lot of other means of, of punishing children, and even at school, you know, you beaten quite a bit. As a matter of fact, one of my teachers had just bought, bought a 50 centimeter ruler, and he said, the first kid that's gonna be beat with it, I'm gonna name the ruler after him. So I had the honor of naming the ruler after me, of course. So I don't know how many years that ruler lasted, but uh, and it did leave a scar. And not, and not like for my parents, for my teachers, for, for a while. Um, it's not it's not an easy thing to go through, especially 
when you start to think about your self-worth and you start to, to, to you know, think about, um, you know, why, you know, the parents of the love dealt with me in this way or why uh, the teachers or um, other forms of, of abuses that might have happened growing up. But we have to receive healing. And I thank God that, you know, forgiveness in, in my heart had to be um, very, very uh, uh, prominent uh, to think and to give, you know, the people who, who hurt me, I'm sure other people and, and children uh, or, or siblings, you know, the same way. We have to forgive and find healing and um, vouch that we're not going to do that to, to our own children, uh, not hurt them in the same way. I'm telling you, my parents are the best. But these are things that kind of stay with us for, for many years until we are older and um, kind of make sense of, of everything in that way. But until we have this, this healing from past injuries or, or abuse or, or aggression or, or any form of um, mistreatment by others in violence or otherwise, it takes time. And for us to be in a healthy and functional relationship, we have to understand where the other is coming from and be willing to spend the time and the energy until they find healing. And until they're back up on their feet and not judge them and understand that they, you know, there will be good days and, and bad days, there'll be moments uh, when people are, are doing really well and they're okay, but other moments that you know remember, because we can forgive, but in all honesty, it's very difficult to forget. We can forgive, but forgiving, forgetting, like we don't have amnesia. Like it's, it's difficult, right? I can say, oh, I forgive you, I'm just gonna forget. No, it, it stays with you. But as the scripture says, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus who strengthens us. So we're not gonna yield to defeat in any way because of the past. God can give us victory over it, and God can give us uh, the ability to move on and have functional and healthy lives and understand and, and learn from these experiences. But at the same time, we need to give our partners or the person that I'm in a relationship with our full ear and understanding and compassion for what they went through. Today we have the Me Too movement, of course, against sexual harassment and assault, and more and more women are standing up, rightfully so, to say, I will not be abused, and I will not uh, be treated in this way because of my gender or because I'm a weaker vessel means that men can take advantage of me and, and we salute all of these movements to, to stand up for uh, like your rights. Uh, how do we handle some of these um, outbursts of, of emotion and understand that we're living in a culture that will not accept any kind of, of abuse or, or aggression? And it's for this generation and it's also for other generations to come. Very important to put ourselves in the shoes of the person sitting at the other side of the table. Next, let's speak a bit about being an agent of healing. And uh, this is a beautiful prayer by Francis of Assisi, who's a saint in the Catholic Church. And um, Anytime I, I, I come face to face with, with some of this discussion where I see people are really hurt and wounds are still bleeding, I pray this prayer in my heart and say, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith. Where there's despair, hope. Where there's darkness, light. 
with his sadness joy. O Heavenly Father, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand. And that's the part that I, I want to put in bold. Not so much to be understood as to understand. I think this is a great gift from God to each and every one of us, to understand. Because sometimes, as Sayyidina was saying earlier, we're just quick to judge. And uh, we don't wait until people start to open up and they feel comfortable enough to tell us why they are behaving this way or why have they made this decision. We're so concerned about the outward appearance that we are not patient enough to understand where people are coming from. And this is in every church and with every congregation, very quick to judge. We always want to fix other people. The first instinct in us is to go up to these people. How dare you? as a married couple to hold hands in the church, or how dare you as a woman do such and such, or cross your legs, or you know, wear your shoes, or wear this, or do that. It's the first thing, wear shoes going up for communion, sorry, that's not just wear your shoes. Or jeans. It just happened actually in church this past Sunday, that, that someone forgot to take off their shoes while going up for communion give communion outside. So someone came and was carrying their, their daughter and you know, this and that, so she forgot. And then like 10 people jumped to like ask her like, like, what did I do? It's like, is it World War Three? Like, is there, give their weapons? Like, what am I doing? We just want to fix people, right? But I think we need, we need patience to understand as to be, uh, to be, uh, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love for it is in giving that we receive, it's in pardoning that we are pardoned, it's in dying to self that we are born to eternal life. Okay, my personal favorite. The way to a man's heart is through his tummy. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed. Uh, <laughs> it was just as good as the barbecue veggies that we had today. <laughs> Five sheep were ready dressed though. Five series of roasted one hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs. Yeah, the cake was the same, it's okay. Thick and fine. And loaded them on donkeys, my favorite idol in the whole wide world. And she said to her servants, Go on before me, see, I'm coming after you. Uh, how many of you uh, saw Britain's Got Talent? Uh, have you heard of uh, Dalisu Chapwanda? Is a, a new uh, comedian that's just coming on the scene. And this is a part of his act about food. Let's see, hopefully, it's gonna. I don't understand the British. I saw a beautiful British woman looking in a mirror upset. I said, what's going on? She said, can't you stay? It's a fat mirror. <laughs> said, she said, this mirror makes me look fatter than I am. I said, no, I think my eyes have the same problem. <laughs> was not mocking her. Don't be angry at me. It was a cultural misunderstanding. I'm from it's different. When we see someone overweight, we don't think go on a diet. We're more like, where did you get the food? <laughs> 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 
So, a way to a man's heart is definitely through his stomach. And uh, that's a very important lesson to learn. Beyond the whole uh, jokes and uh, what Abigail has done for, for David, which truly um, turns the whole situation around. We're living in an extremely healthy culture today. We're a culture that's obsessed with healthy living, fitness, and exercises. And people spend immense amount of, of time on, on healthy food, eat, healthy eating, exercising, and rightfully so. Because actually from a Christian perspective, our body is the temple of God and the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And this is a vessel that carries our soul. Now I'm the worst example for healthy living and eating and exercising. And uh, you know, I was joking earlier about the dumb and all things, but I'm at fault. I'm accepting blame and um, I'm not giving myself any, any excuses. Um, but at the same time, also mentally we associate physical fitness with, with attraction. And sometimes we, we judge people only on what they see and you already have like a perception in your mind about that other person before you actually met the person and have you know got to know them on a more uh, like a closer way there's so much more to a person than just the outside appearance and uh, one of the beautiful quotes by martin luther king jr who said i have a dream do you know that i have a dream famous speech right i have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And this is something that we definitely want to promote, um, is to understand you know, someone's character more than only judge them based on their outwardly appearance. Ah, hot topic, hot topic. She fell on her face. Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, on me let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears. I don't, I don't feel freaking out after uh, <laughs> this particular part of my, my presentation. And um, I mean, speaking these words in today's culture is, is blasphemy. Uh, but this is how we have seen the progression of, of cultures after all this happened 3,000 years ago so I mean we ought to understand that this could be very different from where we are today um, but it's totally fine because again we need understanding of where the whole feminist movement came from and it's, it totally came out of place of abuse and um, aggression against women, inequality of women. So when we speak about feminism, we're referring to the advocacy of women's rights on the basis of the equality of sexes. The belief that men and women deserve equality in all opportunities, treatment, respect, and social rights. When we speak about feminism, we're not only speaking about one thing, because like everything else, there's a whole range of understanding when someone says that they are a feminist. What does that exactly mean? 
We have the moderate uh, feminism, which basically seeks equality and advocacy for women's right to be treated equally in terms of like, wages and in terms of um, uh, you know admission into schools and universities and in terms of treatment. You don't want this inequality because why? Just because I'm a, I'm a woman, a woman, I, I, I would be treated differently. Well, um, living in a patriarchal society, definitely or dominated by men, there was certain abuses towards women. As a matter of fact, in the Jewish culture, it's not in the Bible, but just the Jewish culture, a part of the prayer daily prayer says, thank you God for this, this, this and that, and thank you for not creating me a woman. This is, yeah, so you see how offensive that is. We don't have anything like that. Except, <laughs> except a part of the translation of the Gregorian liturgy, which I've been advocating, please, to update the translation, where we say, you know, after God, you know, thank you for, like, because of your tender verses, you know, you've created me a man. But it doesn't mean male here, not every time there's a reference to male, it means male. Man means human, so I've just trying to advocate this, make it clear. Or when we say in the creed, for us men and for our salvation. Men, in old English, meant humans. So just say what you mean, like just please make that change so, you know, to make it understood, because salvation is not only for men, like when you go into a restaurant, it says men and women. So if you, you're thinking men, you're thinking male. But again, it, it means, uh, human, not necessarily men. So, again, you can go all the way to, to radical feminism that says men have been controlling the world for too long, now it's time for women to take over and to subject men. And it's not fair that women should be bearing children, we should find alternatives, uh, because why should she be wasting time nursing children? You know, we can do all of this conception and other machines and things like that and we just take the baby and raise them. And there are some ideas which are very extreme. But the idea here is that we are not necessarily seeking equality in God's, uh, with God's people, but we want unity. Unity, in my opinion, is more important than equality. The Epistle of St. Paul in Galatians 3.28 said, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. It's very important understanding that when it comes to roles in the church, yes, we might have different roles, but that does not prevent us from God's salvation. Our understanding, as His Grace was saying earlier, that we are bearers of God's image, both men and women without any kind of, of distinction. While we're turning the table here, the comment I want to say is that we cannot neglect the, the women's movement or the feminist movement, okay? Like if you're looking now for an Abigail who would come up to you and fall on your face and uh, to bow down before you to, to the ground, uh, you might be single for a very long time, okay? So you have to have realistic expectations. Because after all, our beloved women are extremely educated, sometimes more than men, and this could be like a point of, of tension for some men. Very smart, very intelligent, good-looking, you know, they're, they go, are go-getters, they're successful in all that they do, and they have great personalities. And this is what a lot of men are looking for, like 
you know, women who are, um, who can think with them, who can lead, who can take roles and responsibilities, and I'll talk about that, the final point. And uh, women who can make men better, not just follow blindly. And this is what we really appreciate. But at the same time, from the perspective of, of women, extreme feminine, feminism could also be damaging to a relationship. Because you have to understand, if, especially if you're approaching or, or marrying or expecting to marry a Middle Eastern man, there's that whole concept of the man ego also that you still have to deal with. And you have to work in, in collaboration and cooperation. But, you know, he won't accept if a woman would stomp on him uh, so that she would, you know, get ahead. I'm sure this is not the intention of anyone, but I'm just giving extreme examples to understand where we're coming from. I think what we're approaching in our generation uh, is the whole concept of friendship, cooperation, working together. And it's not so much about who's the head and who's the neck and who's the, the crown and the head and who's the, the neck that moves the head that has the crown and the head. All these confusing terms, okay, that culminate at the end of the day to a power struggle. Who has more power? And everyone is like, hey man, this is old cartoon that said, I got the power. No, hey man, I got the power. Anyone seen that? Says, oh, you know he man? We'll watch an episode after. <laughs> and the masters of the universe. The guy's skeleton. We'll talk about it. So please be moderate in your approach. We have to acknowledge what's happening in our culture and appreciate it and make it work in our favor. Finally, he said to her, Blessed is your advice. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. I really love this compliment by David, who acknowledged that his wife, a woman, 3,000 years ago, had more wisdom than him, and he listened to her advice. Father Tadus Ya'ub said, I do not know, should I praise Abigail, who kept such a great man from committing a crime, or should I praise David for receiving the advice and praising her? If he was a disciple under the pious prophet Samuel, it was claimed that she shall be likewise. So both of them had the spirit of wisdom mingled with humility. Also, Abbot Derithero said, I know that no man shall fall except he who holds fast to his own counsel. There is nothing more regretful, nor more dangerous, and more than a man to be his own counselor. Counseling is essential for any successful relationship. And if things start right, we will end right. Listening to advice from a confession father or spiritual guide is of immense significance. But the amazing thing here that I want to just kind of touch on is the whole idea of gender roles and responsibilities. And again, this is a very hot and sensitive topic as we were speaking earlier about feminism. There's a great challenge now to a traditional stay-at-home mom model, again, as women are, get, are out in the uh, work field, uh, extremely um, intelligent and uh, successful in their careers. We deal with a lot of amazing situations and solve problems. We have to have realistic expectations when it comes to a relationship and, and bridging that gap or meeting each other somewhere or finding common ground. 
Remember a few years back, uh, one of our youth was studying at, at Harvard. And uh, he, he invited me, he was in law school, and he invited me to speak to the Christian um, club uh, for, for law school. So each school would have its own Christian club. Uh, so the Christian club of the law school at, at Harvard. So I, I went to Boston and I had a meeting and we spoke about many wonderful things uh, that day, but I can't forget a comment that one of the ladies actually mentioned in that meeting. Um, she said, Father, when I come into a, a meeting like this, I can't check out my brains at the door. You know what she's trying to say? Like she's saying that I'm the same person in Harvard Law School, like some of the most intelligent people in the world, I think. Um, and when I come in to study the Bible, or when I come in to be in a meeting like this, when we speak about Christianity, I can't be two different people. I am who I am. I am the same person at work, like at school, like at church, like at home, and this is who I am. I, I also was joking with them that day, and I said, like, probably some of you uh, are going to be the, the future uh, senators and, and presidents of the U.S., and I, and I was laughing, and no one was laughing. They were, like, nodding their ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what happened in America. <laughs> but uh, I don't know, these people uh, don't think jokes either. That's the more smartness you are, but the more serious you are. <laughs> Can you get on with the topic, please? Don't get distracted. <laughs> so, it's very important to understand that. Um, most women now are not just going to be your, your, you know, your, your mom. You're not playing your mom, basically. Keep that in mind, okay? Mom as it's the same, or grandma is the same, but, you know, you're not going to marry. And, and I see a lot of couples struggle with that because they're expecting the same kind of, like, treatment with them, but you don't want to marry. You already have a mom at home. You want to marry a wife who's, who's like very smart and uh, who can take charge and uh, of course, you know, it takes two people now to live comfortably. You can't live on one income, so most women are out in the old field. And they have a good career, etc. And in the same manner also, uh, for the ladies, again, you might have a good role model in your father. And you want to marry someone just like him. Or you've had bad experience with your father who was always too strict and this and that. So we come into a relationship with a lot of baggage that you can't shake off and you're treating him as if you're seeing your father treating your mother in an abusive way and you want to make your point by being just as dominant or aggressive with him and you completely lose him. So please keep all of these things in mind as you become realistic in your own expectations. Also there's the challenge now in, in North America of people who were born and raised in the West and new immigrants, yes, whether they are, you know, immigrants or came through a different means to North America as refugees or, or, or lobby or whatever it is, the whole concept of the bicultural, like being raised in a certain way and thinking in a certain way and coming to North America and feeling that, you know, I can marry anyone and, you know, I can be the man who demands obedience and demands respect. Respect is earned. It's not granted. It's not something that you know it comes with the title. With anything, with marriage, relationships, even for priesthood now. 
Like you should see the people who, who come, let's say, from, from Italy, the you any priest that you see, they have to like I always say like the difference between generations and how different generations greet a priest. So if you're like a grandma or someone who's like fresh, when you see the priest, you run to them. With your left hand, you hold the wrist. With your right hand, with your right hand, they secure you the hand, and they keep kissing your hand without like, and you like you can't pull it away. Like, that's the way they love clergy, they love priesthood. And then you have like other generations who come in, give them the cross, they kiss the cross, and and then the new generations who are like now it's more like props high fiving. <laughs> Secret handshakes. But my favorite one is like the little children. The little boy who come up to you and they have no clue what to say or what to do. So you find like the kid coming up and like the parents are like, kiss up on his hand, kiss up on his hand. Like, I don't know. <laughs> and finally they just come and they curl over and they just stand like this. And then the priest can do whatever they want. You can <laughs> kiss their head, you can whatever, they have no clue. So you can already see how different generations are changing all of these things. And uh, life now is, is a partnership. I mean, when we come into a relationship with a lot of preconceived ideas and expectations, and we haven't spent the time to get to know the person, to communicate well and to connect with them well, this relationship will never take off the ground. Partnership in all aspects of life, like expenses and work and raising children, house chores, advice, wisdom and collaboration, all of these things are very much needed in today's culture without necessarily assigning certain roles and responsibilities to one or the other. It's a matter of who's best at what. But if I'm not good with numbers and checks and money, let your spouse do it and take care of it. And I'm going to be better at something else. And I know a lot of guys now will love to cook and love to clean and love to do house chores or, or it's a partnership. And I always say in marriage preparation classes, you can't have like a couch potato who's coming from work and tired, you know, expects to go home, find dinner on the table and, you know, sits there and waits for the wife to, to cook and to clean and to take out the garbage and then now let's have some quality time together. Well, she's exhausted. If she does that, I hope no one does that in our generation, but what if you do things together, you partner up in the cooking and the cleaning, and then you have a lot more time to spend together as a couple. In conclusion, I want to say that God has created each person uniquely in his own image and likeness as his grace has told us today. And we have to appreciate this masterpiece. You know how in, in Ephesians um, uh, 2, 8, 9, and 10, we speak about grace and how um, by grace we've been saved, not because of works. In verse 5 it says, For we are his workmanship, created for good works. This workmanship is amazing masterpiece. Like literally it means a masterpiece. Each and every one of us is worthy and is a masterpiece designed by God himself. We need to appreciate that and get closer to one another based on this understanding. We're all different yet possessing gifts and talents from God. We must invest a lot of time in understanding, turning the tables around and trying to think, that person that I want to be in a relationship with, 
What's their background? How were they brought up? What kind of hurts that they faced in the past? And this will come by time. And this will come over time. But the more we're understanding and we can extend God's grace to them, the more nurturing and fulfilling a relationship we can have with them. We must also be willing to challenge ourselves and get outside our comfort zone to explore the beauty of others. Be willing to take uh, risks. And as we heard in the last session uh, from C.S. Lewis, the whole concept of not just hiding inside the coffin and having a hardened heart, being vulnerable and allowing others to see us for who we really are and letting that light so shine before others. So may God bless us as we continue to grow in knowing and understanding not just ourselves but also others. And glory be to God. Um. Before we leave that topic, one, it takes, you know, it's okay because it takes sometimes 10, 15, 20 seconds for people to think about their questions. So it's okay. Take your time. So, um, you mentioned the topic of counseling. At what point in your Obviously, premarital. Uh, at what point do you recommend it, and how often? If uh, a person has a good relationship with their confession father, I think they should let them know early enough, um, just to kind of set straight the path, like just to make sure that we're on the right path and we're not making like a big decision, because. Unfortunately, what ends up happening with some people is that they wait too long until many mistakes have been done or it's too late for them or they're already too committed and they're just trying you know, to make a decision, should they stay or should they leave? But uh, if we're following up from earlier on, like, you know, and I have some of my children uh, in confession who just come to me and they say, you know, I'm starting to speak with such and such, still very early. Just want to give you a heads up and I start to ask some questions just to know. You know that person what's he or she like um, how how do you know them um, you know something about them that's special just kind of to get a feel of you know where they're at and then we pray with them and we pray for them and uh, you know by God's grace they continue to grow and as the relationship flourishes so as early as possible I think it's it's advice even just a quick check-in with the confession father would be very helpful Follow-up question. Just a follow-up to that. Okay. Do you recommend that? Do you recommend that your father of confession speak to that person at what point in the relationship? This is, uh, I believe, case by case, uh, depending if, if that person, like how how they may view speaking with a priest. Because in some people's mind, like. Again, like I don't know who the other person would be. If they're already a part of the Orthodox Church and they're used to the idea of speaking with the Confession Father, then it would be easier for them. But if someone not from the Church, they might feel that uh, if I speak with the Confession Father, it means I'm committing to this relationship and we're going to end up getting married next week, <laughs> for example. So it might be a bit intimidating for some people to, to go very early. Um, but if, if another person has a confession father, they should also follow up with, with them as, as early as possible. And when you feel that the relationship is maturing and it's going in the right direction, um, 
I, I love to see that both uh, individuals are speaking with the same confession father or at least guide or counselor, even if it's not for confession, they're having the same guide to make sure uh, that the, you know, the father sees both perspectives and speaks with each person individually and get a feel of how that relationship is, is going. So at some point, yes, there's a need for the other person to also speak with, with that person. Other questions? So uh, you, uh, your reverence talked about long distance relationships earlier today. What are some of the tips and advice that you give to navigate long distance relationships and uh, how to go about making the decision on where to live afterwards? Long distance relationships are hard or harder than two people living in the same city. But in our day age, living in a global village, the whole world is so small, and through technology, we can still see each other and, and uh, at least on like you know, a phone or something, uh, FaceTime, etc. Um, but there has to be some um, like like certain planning to meet face to face. Like you can't depend only on virtual conversations over the phone or, or even over you know FaceTime things like that because people are different when they are together physically in the same place there is no chance to wear a mask uh, or to uh, you know pretend to be someone that you're not that you're there here bare self bare necessities right um, but uh, it's a part of uh, of our modern age like we can't we can't hide away from it. It's uh, one option that people have to explore. I think the challenge comes when um, there's a need to see who's going to sacrifice, who's going to leave their hometown and comfort zone, and church and friends and move to the other city. And there isn't a rule for that. Okay, like we saw with the very first example of Isaac and Rebecca. Like Rebecca had to pack everything and go with Isaac. Um, in our day, current day and age, sometimes Isaac has to back up and then go to Rebecca. And both are fine. Again, let's base the decision on what works best for us. And hopefully at the end of the day, I hope the decision is to move to Canada rather than <laughs> go down south. Every time the cold weather and snow, like every time I hear like, the news yeah. forecast here, like earth, no, not earthquakes, like hurricanes and all natural disasters. And, <laughs> we can endure some uh, some cold weather if we're not going to be at the path of all the hurricanes. I'm just trying to stop Canada and make it more appealing. It's not really, uh, I'm not a really good salesman. <laughs> no, I love this. I love this. Yes. Is there is there a limit to the number of years to know somebody before you can leave? I don't think there is any limit, but. We don't recommend that it's too, too fast, like a few months. Right? That's very fast, if it's only a few months. And we don't recommend that it's also too, too long, like a few years. So not a few months and not a few years. It has to be somewhere in the middle. Let's talk a couple of years is okay. A couple of years, I think, gives you time to really get to know the other person. And again, depends on age or circumstances. Like some people who are a little bit older, they're a bit mature. Maybe they're more willing to settle a little bit faster rather than someone who's in their like early twenties or something like that. So again, it's 
It's case by case, but just just the idea not to fast and not to too slow. Sorry? Maybe a week. A week? <laughs> a week? <laughs> a week? <laughs> There's no limit. I think it's, this it's conversation bad. is weak already. So <laughs> that decision would be very weak. But, um, some of the Middle Eastern marriages, they happen very quick. Two, three weeks or 40 days. But most of these marriages have their challenges. So definitely not recommended in our day and age to you know, someone, a boy meets a girl and he's like, I wanna, you know, can I get to know you and, you know, can we get married in a month? Or, that doesn't work like that. Like, he wants to tell his intention that he ultimately wants to marry her, but it doesn't mean that I'm gonna propose that. And, and here's another difference between both cultures, Middle Eastern culture and North American culture. The order of things that happen, boy meets girl in, 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 in the Middle East. Maybe it's changing a little bit now. The next step is to get engaged, right? Like I've known each other for a couple of weeks. Let's just get engaged so people are not talking about us and your reputation and this and that. And then get to know each other and then get married or, or break up. In North America, it's very different, right? Because boy meets girl. They court for a while or they date or they get to know each other. And the day that they get engaged, this is the day that they decide on the day of their wedding, right? Engagement means, let's plan for the wedding. It means that we are getting married. And then they decide for, you know, the wedding day. So there's a gap in culture between these two things or expectation, right? Because engagement, even though it's the same word, but when you say the word engagement to a Middle Eastern person, they're thinking, we're just trying it out. Doesn't mean any kind of like, 100% commitment, we're gonna get married. You, you know what I'm saying? But again, in North America, it's different. So how is that culture difference gonna play out in your relationship? And what are the expectations from church and from parents and from friends? All of these things play into account. From your experience of what I'm uh, counseling people and like, involving these like, couples issues, um, is it like when you marry, when you're married to like your opposite personality, will increase the chance of having like troubles and stuff during the marriage, rather like married to your pretty much same personality type, you know, and that will like happen in your like, less problematic. Very good question. So I don't want to mix up between two things: personality types and must-haves or non-negotiables, non-negotiables in, in a marriage. The personality types may, may differ, and that's not a hindrance to a marriage, because at the end of the day, we're all gonna be different, we have our, our unique characteristics, but there are certain criteria that each person has their own mind for the person that they wanna marry, non-negotiables. And there are some things which are breaking points, like must have and impossible to have. These two things we have to think ahead of, of time about the person that we want to commit to. So this has have nothing to do with the personalities. For example, someone would say, I want to be married to an individual who res respects me for real, who never um, screams at me or never is violent or verbally abusive or has a hot temper. Right? So it might be a personality type, maybe, but this is like a criteria. It's a non-negotiable criteria. Some people will say, I'm gonna 
get married to someone who is very close to God, or someone who has a relationship with God. I don't know, does that exist anymore? Or people guys? A lot of ladies are thinking, like, where are those guys, right? No, there are, there are a lot of guys. So having a real relationship with God, it's a must have in a relationship, in, 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 a, in a relationship with other uh, persons. Uh, addictions, for example. I'm gonna say, you know, I, I can never be with someone who smokes or um, drinks or uses drugs or all of these things. And this is like a red flag immediately. As soon as you hear that about the person, like you can't, like if you can't stand like the smell of, of smoke, then how can you live with a person who, who smokes all the time? Or someone who has an addiction uh, to, to gambling, for example. So these are criteria which are different than personality types. So first, it's almost like screening. First, if, you know, you, you screen the first things to make sure to get to level two, okay? So you mean Super Mario Brothers, you know, you get, you get to finish the first stage and then you get to the second level. So. I don't think you can get to the second level of personality types unless you go through the first phase of really agreeing and, and, and you know, mentally approving that there's a good potential in this person, in the criteria that you must see in, in the future one. Sometimes they say like the opposite is the attractive. The attractive. Yeah. I found myself so unbelievable. Like you know, just I feel like more comfortable to get like to know somebody who's just like very much. This is this is the point what we asked about. Like not the, not read the details, like rather the words. And I understand that, but when we say opposites attract, what are we really referring to? Like like someone who's like innocent that has been raised in the church all her life wants to marry a gangster, for example. <laughs> in some cases, you know, they see that difference as attraction, but I don't think this is what people mean when they say opposites attraction. This means they have so much in common, definitely there has to be a common foundation to, to this relationship, common understanding about roles, responsibilities, uh, expectations in a marriage, but I think upon further investigation, they discover that there are, each one of them has certain gifts or talents which is not present in the other person, and they complete one another. So this is what we mean by opposites attract, but it doesn't mean polar opposites. Someone who has an anger problem management and goes to counseling and hits people and this and that, and the other person who's like very patient, she will end up being uh, abused, right? So that's not a good, like, that's not what we mean by saying opposites attract, not polar opposites. So there has to be enough common foundation between the two to make any relationship successful. Any other questions? One, two, three, three. something called missionary dating. 
You know what I'm saying? God sent me specifically to him to change his heart and make him a good Christian and then we get married and then we got blessed. Like, you're not the right person to preach to your future spouse because this is not how it, how it works, right? Because in their mind, there's gonna be like, these are two completely two different roles. Someone who brings you to the faith, you can be a good role model, but you're not, not the one who, you know, is preaching to, to a, a potential spouse. The same time, there's a lot of good Christians in, in North America, in America, there's some amazing Christians. So basically what we're saying is that it's a change of denominational affiliation. So you're not converting them. And I, when we when we speak about someone who's Protestant or Catholic, I really don't like the word, you know, I'm converting to orthodoxy. Because Orthodox and Catholic and, 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 and Protestant, they're all Christian at the end of the day. This is what unites us. We all believe in the same God, we believe in the Holy, same Holy Trinity, believe in the divinity of Christ, we believe in the same Bible, and we believe that ultimately we're all gonna be in, in the same heaven, that there are no corners for this generation. Everyone is around the throne of Christ. But, yes, we acknowledge that over the centuries there's been some differences in, in, in uh, interpretation of scriptures and in traditions. There's an Eastern tradition that, that grew in the Middle East called Orthodoxy and, and beyond. There's a Western tradition that, that grew in, in Europe, mainly in, in Italy. Uh, and then we understand about the Reformation and everything that came afterwards. But the bottom line that there are some excellent and amazing Christians who, who live in our country and when we express to them and explain like how dear our faith is and, and the necessity and the calling to continue in that faith, they don't have a problem to, you know, as long as it's Christian for them, so we don't have a problem. We're not giving up our belief in Jesus and in salvation or belief in heaven, but we're gonna practice your faith just to unite with you. So that there's unity within the home. So most of, of the, uh, the cross-cultural marriages uh, are from two individuals who, like one is of a Coptic Christian background, and someone else was already a Christian, but they just get to learn about the Orthodox faith, and they embrace it, and they make it their own. Very suddenly, and we're starting to, to see this more and more now, we're starting to see uh, some people who are being introduced to um, potential spouses who are coming from Islam, um, Judaism, uh, Hinduism, uh, some Buddhist, some atheist, and there's more challenge to that. I'm not saying I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's more challenge. It takes a lot more time, and as you're saying, we need to be genuine and, and encourage that person to be genuine to see if they're truly willing to embrace the Orthodox Christian faith, or are they just coming to cruise along, or they're just coming get married and then we'll never see them again. Unfortunately, there are some cases as such, and uh, we may advise not to pursue it, but at the end of the day, if two adults are consenting, and we, you know, there are no impediments to marry them in the church, we will marry them, we'll do our best to make them comfortable over time to embrace them in the church, but it has to be a choice by the couple also. So again, it's, it's case by case. So I have a question when you say that about the interfaith marriages, how uh, some people will do a wedding in the church and then maybe afterwards they'll do like another ceremony? Yeah. Uh, how does that work? So the Orthodox Church doesn't have interfaith marriages. We may call it intercultural, cross-cultural, 
mixed culture. I don't really like that word mixed. It sounds like mixed up, but it's, it's But we don't do interfaith or even interdenominations. There's only like we only do marriage in the Orthodox Church uh, under the sacrament and understanding of the Orthodox faith. And there's a requirement that the couple would both be uh, Orthodox Christians or yeah, like Oriental Orthodox per se. Now, some people may do not a religious ceremony. Like for example, uh, one time I married a, a couple and they were like Coptic Hindu, originally. But a young lady came to the church. She stayed a long time. She learned about the faith. And she really embraced it. And then many, many years later, she's still a practicing Orthodox Christian, even a little bit more than the person who was born and raised in the church. Lovely, lovely. And, and, and Hindus are very honorable, very respectful to the clergy and to the faith. So we, when you bring that into the church, that it captures really amazing thing. But again, Hinduism is a polytheistic religion. It's not even a monotheistic religion. So they decided to be married and um, we, we did marry them. And then she said, now my family wants to hold like a traditional Indian celebration after the wedding and wear the beautiful saris and have like some like Indian music. And uh, I, I, I like counseled or consent, like I spoke with one of our fathers, the bishops, just to see what's the best thing to do in this situation. And he said, do the cultural celebration, but don't do a religious Hindu celebration. So don't let a Hindu priest come and bless the couple or do any Hindu prayers or have any of their um, gods or you know idols present because they receive like blessings from them. But if it's a matter of like Indian dances and cultural folkloric dances and wearing traditional clothes and eating traditional food, all of that is completely fine. So we're just caring about the religious aspect of it because the Bible says our God is a jealous God. We can't combine, you know, after you've received the sacrament in the church, you go and you start taking blessings from like Hindu gods and you can't, like it's just not appropriate. And for her, it was really important to know that her heart is now completely and totally in the Orthodox Church. Like she doesn't have any regrets about leaving something. Now this okay for the parents and no, and we can't. And, and they did actually exactly that. And I attended this uh, celebration. It was one of the best uh, wedding receptions I, I attended because it was so colorful and joyful. And they insisted that I attend. I didn't have my traditional Indian uh, turban and clothes. So I stuck out like a sore thumb in the midst of the reception. But uh, it was lovely and her family are lovely. They're very respectful people. We're still friends till now. Um, and we have no problem with culture. It's just the religious aspect of it that we can do. Please. You mentioned that um, uh, there are many good Christians from different denominations of America. Yes. And the two of them get together and get married. Why does it have to be one way to have to be in the hospital? If you have one of your congregation and one them get married and another thing, what would you do with them? Them, but, but will be yours. So this is a really common thing. Sure. 
I'm very thankful to God that in our generation, the uh, relationship between all Christian denominations is at an all-time high. You should see all the literature from 50, 60 years ago, how Protestants thought about Orthodox and Catholics spoke about Protestant and Orthodox. This, it was a mess and it was a war. I'm so thankful that in the past 20, 30 years there's been a new ecumenical movement that has really brought everyone together. And for example, when we first started our church, we were renting, uh, like we were between two churches. One was a, a Catholic church and school, and uh, a Protestant uh, Lutheran uh, church that rented for us, right? And we are Orthodox. So we have to reciprocate also in, in the same way. Um, by offering our facility to different people who um, are trying to, to use it and, and encourage them uh, in, in any way. But in the same token, each church still has its own guidelines and rules, especially about marriage. Um, we don't have full communion yet with the Catholic or the Protestant church, so that's why we don't acknowledge each other's sacraments. This is something that, that has been in existence for 1,500 years. It cannot be resolved overnight. It cannot be resolved in like a year or two or three. But at least if there's no unity of, of faith, but there's unity of love. Because Jesus said that they all may be one. They will know that we are his children when we have oneness, one shepherd and one flock. So the bottom line is that the rules of the Orthodox Church is that if a couple marry in another church or synagogue or civil marriage, they are no longer able to partake of the Holy Communion and they excommunicate themselves from the Orthodox Church. That's the rule now. Whether this is going to change or not, we don't know because clergy, like you say, I just work here, like I don't make the rules. <laughs> I don't come up with rules. The rules come from the hierarchy and from the Holy Synod. I say, these are the rules. I say, thank you so much. I can have these limits. So it's going to take time. But we are getting better, and things are getting closer with a lot of dialogue. And that's why in the Orthodox Church, if you do decide to get married, um, in the Orthodox Church, you can continue partaking in the, the Holy Sacraments and becoming members of, of the Church. If you decide to marry another church, that becomes your home church. Do you understand? I don't think you're like, you're, yeah, I Understanding is different than agreeing, by the way. Like we, we can understand, but yeah. we may or may not agree. I get your point because, and I've had this discussion many times with a lot of people uh, who feel a sense of pride in their own church and, and, and we respect and love every church. But again, ecumenical differences that have existed for 15 centuries, they're not gonna be resolved overnight. But at least now, when we get together, all the leaders of all the churches are together with a sincere kind of respect and love and understanding that we're both, or we're all working for the same goal, which is the salvation of our soul. Um, How much more time do we have? It's almost 10 o'clock. Anyone else has a question? So this will be our last question. So. Just, um, just referring to your earlier point about the Holy Synod, yes. which of the Orthodox churches are acceptable? Or, uh, Within the same family? So, so we have in Orthodoxy, in Orthodoxy two families. One is called Oriental Orthodox, and one is called Eastern Orthodox. 
We are part of the Oriental Orthodox, and by the way, the word Oriental is a random word that has nothing to do with geographical location or anything else. Because when you think Oriental, you're thinking the Far East. But we're thinking mainly in the Middle East. Anyhow, um, this is a term that was given to us in the late 1940s, early 50s, by the World Council of Churches, just to kind of distinguish this group of churches. So that would be the Coptic Church, the Syrian Church, the Armenian Church, the Ethiopian Church, the Indian Church, and the Eritrean Church. Six churches. Not Ethiopian anymore. Ethiopian? Yeah, uh, yeah, I said Ethiopian. Ethiopian, but also Eritrean now is its own independent church. So six churches in the Oriental Orthodox family. And then you have the Eastern Orthodox family. Uh, and it used to be uh, under the ecumenical patriarchate of uh, Istanbul or Constantinople. Uh, now there are no Christians in Turkey, so kind of shifted to, to, to Greece. But uh, there's still like a respect for like, he's supposed to be like the new Rome of, of the East, uh, Constantinople. So the seat there is still existing, but uh, you have attached to, to that Eastern family, the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, and then all the Balkans. You can count them in Bulgaria and Romania and uh, Serbia, Ukraine, yeah, yeah, all of, all of the Balkans countries, uh, and especially after Russia got uh, dismantled, all of these churches, and the latest addition to that is the OCA, the Orthodox Church of America, which is having its own troubles in, in North America, but it's an offshoot of the Russian church, it's supposed to be more embracing to the American people or American culture, but unfortunately, it ended up being just more or less like a Russian church, but but anyhow, but anyhow, 15 churches in the Eastern Orthodox Church, and then you have the Catholic Church, which is a worldwide church under the same pope. The Orthodox Church, each one of those churches has its own local leader or patriarch, right? So we don't have like one pope for all the Orthodox. Each local church has its own bishop or patriarch. The Catholic Church has worldwide leadership and then you have the protestant church which you know uh, after the, the the reformation started with several uh, denominations in each of the european countries so each country in europe had its own reformation uh, and it you know started by its own leader so we started to have the presbyterian church and the uh, uh, baptist church and uh, the lutheran church Etc. The Church of England, of course, the Anglican Church, and then out of there, there are other reformations and other many denominations. Which was the first Christian denomination that was born in North America and not in Europe out of the Reformation? This is a quiz for you. Now the Baptist started in uh, in Europe. No, the Methodist started in Europe. Mm -hmm. so Jehovah's Witness, yes, it did start in America, but that's not considered to be a Christian denomination. And Mormonism in North America, but it's not a Christian denomination. Huh? No. Brethren, all of these people are from Europe. Huh? Do you know? Beginning of the 20th century, Pentecostal. The Pentecostal Church started in North America, specifically in Los Angeles, where else, of course, and, and spread worldwide. 
We can speak about that later. I know you're falling asleep now, so I won't give you any more information for them. Nice God bless you guys. Thank you for all the uh, interaction. And uh, for Abuna for his takeover. We're going to pray that.